First of all, I think we, we all agree that having a free and fair election in any context is a good thing. So it's, it's not a good place to be in, honestly, for, for democracy. If, if you don't have both parties you know, agreeing to the same rules of the political game and to the legitimacy of outcomes, I think you are on a prospectively dangerous, uh, dangerous path. When exactly are electoral observation missions warranted in a democracy? Hungarians are heading to the polls on April 3rd this year, and a substantial share of the opposition to Prime Minister Viktor Orban seems to fear that the election will be neither free nor fair. Last month, a coalition of members of the European Parliament officially requested that a team of election monitors be sent by the OSCE, which quickly acquiesced. Their call for applications, should you wish to help combat electoral fraud and ensure equal access to balloting, is open until February 11th. Now, mind you, by calling external observers, the opposition is making a larger point. Orban, they claim, has spent the past 12 years in office amassing power at the expense of democratic institutions, silencing critical media, lining up the pockets of his cronies, butting up to China and Russia, all whilst advancing in a liberal worldview that threatens Hungary's good standing in the EU and the rights of vulnerable minorities. Now that's a thoroughly negative case, but what is the opposition actually for? Whilst Orban is sure to run on his sound economic record securing widespread prosperity for his people, it is far less clear what kind of government Peter Markizai, Orban's challenger, will form if elected. With us this week to discuss, we are pleased to be joined by Boris Kolnicki, head of the media school and Matthias Corvinus Collegium in Budapest, and Dalibor Rohatch, a senior fellow at the Washington-based American Enterprise Institute. As always, please remember you can help the show immensely by doing very little. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice, and please consider donating to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash undecencypod. Now, enjoy the show. Well, so we are so delighted to have with us two esteemed observers of Hungarian life here for this conversation as we gear up for the upcoming election. Uh, on one end of the line, we have Boris Kalnaki, who is a lifelong journalist who has covered Hungary for various European media. He began reporting from Hungary for Die Welt, the German daily, in 1987. He was later a Balkans correspondent and Middle East correspondent for that uh, same paper, and he's the author uh, of a book that came out in 2011 called Annenland that uh, tells the, the story of his family and, and Hungary since 1952. And the book uh, is coming out, a Hungarian translation of the book is coming out very soon. And he's now the head of the media school at Matthias Corvinus Collegium in Budapest. On the other end of the line, we have Dalibor Rohatch, who is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, where he covers the European Union, Central and Eastern Europe. He is concurrently a research associate at the Wilfrid Martin Center for European Studies in Brussels, as well as a fellow at the Anglo-American University in Prague. He's also the author of a book called In Defense of Globalism. So thank you both, uh, Boris and, and Dalibor, for being with us today. I want to I begin with uh, some useful, if somewhat contentious, background on this upcoming Hungarian election. 
uh, a coalition of 62 members of the European Parliament from five different groups and 19 different countries has requested just last week requested that an OSCE election observation mission be sent to Hungary. My first question to the both of you is, how legitimate are the opposition's fears that the race will be, in their words, rigged? Even if the electoral process itself was you know, squeaky clean, the opposition alleges that Orban has been accumulating power to the detriment of democratic institutions for long enough a period to tilt this upcoming race in his favor. So, Boris, I want to start with you. What are what are um, how legitimate are the opposition's concerns that the that the election will be rigged? Well, I haven't heard any such uh, concerns. I understand the sixty-two deputies you talk as are not Hungarians, uh, and the opposition are enthusiastically looking forward to winning this election. They, it will have been rigged if they lose. In that case, they will then say it has been rigged. But uh, everything they say points to an attitude that is actually very confident of winning this election. As far as the uh, observer mission is concerned, such missions have come and uh, gone on and observed, I, I think, uh, well, certainly in 2018, I think also in 2014. And they um, then issue a report which usually tends to say that uh, the election was free but not fair and why was it not fair usually because the uh, the media landscape did not provide for uh, an even playing field i have gone on the record as saying that in the history of democracy there has never ever been a single even playing field at any one election and there will never be the media uh, landscape will always be slant to one side or to another. If we take the elections in 2002, 2006, or even before as a, uh, as a point of reference, you will see that there was something like an 85% dominance of, of media really pushing for the left to win, and no one, com no one complained anywhere. Well, thank you so much. Um, Dalibor, you know, obviously this is not just about the, the upcoming election, which you, you've also been covering quite closely. This is, you know, the opposition is making a larger point that beyond the upcoming election, that the, the Hungarian democracy has been suffering what they call is democratic backsliding. How much credence do you lend? How much uh, how legitimate do you think are these concerns and these fears about Hungarian democracy? Well, I think, first of all, I think we, we all agree that having a free and fair election in any context is a good thing. Um, in, in the Hungarian context, there have been questions in the past, as Boris said, about uh, the fairness of previous elections in 2018. Uh, the OSCE report did note uh, you know, the heavy use by the government of uh, you know, various government information campaigns and national consultations for explicitly political, political purposes. I think there are valid questions around the current electoral law the extent of, of, of the gerrymandering that has split various various constituencies that were leaning left uh, and also mergers of, of, of various constituencies with sort of Fidesz dominated areas uh, you know in in, 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 in in and around cities like like Mishkol's Pech or, or, or Seged. Uh, now the accusations of voter fraud obviously are premature and 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 I think should be should be uh, made with extreme caution uh, there are rules around voter registration for Hungarians living abroad that have been relaxed in a way uh, that could in my opinion fuel reasonable concerns uh, 
but but still, you know, if you if you think the the, the opposition's rhetoric is overwrought or the critics' rhetoric is overwrought, uh, we should not leave out the fact that it is the current government. Uh, not the opposition that is already accusing the United States and the Biden administration of meddling in the in the election, and also that Hungary does have an unfortunate history of sort of you know delegitimizing election outcomes, uh, not least in 2006 when uh, it was Fidesz that that called for a new election following the leaks of of Yurchan's uh, uh, uh speech. So. So it's, it's not a good place to be in, honestly, for for democracy. If if you don't have both parties, you know, agreeing to the same rules of the political game and to the legitimacy of outcomes, I think you are on a prospectively dangerous, uh, dangerous path. Sure, and and I feel like maybe some of some of uh, Dalibor's points uh, merit a, a right of response by Boris. If you'd like to to take it away, Boris, uh, regarding some of it. Ah, sure. Yeah. Okay. So. Um... <clears throat> 2006, um, that was, first of all, let me put it this way, there have been, there, somehow the, the um, Orban's critics say that he, he will not concede elections if he loses, and uh, if he wins, it will have been rigged. I, I, I warmly recommend to simply look at past elections he lost power in 2002. He conceded there was not a single problem. In 2006, as Dalibor mentions, he did not lose power. The socialists remained in power. Uh, the uh, domestic political situation was dramatically changed at that point by a leaked internal speech by the then prime minister, uh, Ferenc Djurcain, uh, which opened him up to attack and which led to a radical loss in popular support immediately because he said, um, yeah, we won the elections, but how did we win them? We won them by lying to the people from early morning to late in the night every single day. So that, that cost him popular support in a very massive way. You could argue that he, at that point, had lost uh, legitimacy, democratically speaking. But the point is, Orban accepted the uh, election outcome there was not, uh, I mean, there was no revolution or anything. There were massive uh, demonstrations uh, and the socialists went ahead and sent hundreds of policemen without identification marks and shot at the people with rubber bullets. One man had his eye shot out. The, the, there was massive uh, use of rubber clubs and tear gas and everything. We have never seen that kind of police violence ever since communism. And, uh, and I will not forget this personally because I watched it from the door of my house and I saw these guys shooting at, at, uh, at, at simple well, demonstrators. I will not forget that. No, I was just going to say, you know, this uh, really, um, I guess, if there's one thing we can all kind of agree on is, is you know, the... the um, the necessity for Hungary to have an open uh, electoral contest, and and you know, I, as I think both of your remarks make clear, uh, there is rarely a, a perfectly even playing field when political parties, um, you know, run for for election or, or re-election. But at least on on this uh, occasion, we hope that uh, you know the, the conditions are going to be you know uh, are going to be even enough, so so that uh, you know. Uh, you know, major uh, claims of electoral fraud, for instance, are going to be deemed outlandish. But uh, Francois, go ahead and, and take it away with the, the next question. Yeah, I, I want to um, focus a bit on, on, on the elections. Now, there is a, 
first of all, there's been an interesting development because uh, to contain inflation, Orban decreed a, decreed a price freeze across major consumer items, which I guess is so much for his kind of fat-right credentials, his AEI critics will claim. But his pitch to voters is clear. Prosperity, growth for his people, while keeping the obey the noxious influence of liberal universalism, picking fights with George Soros, um, taking away, you know, immigration and identity politics away from the country. As a result, you've got an opposition which seems to be bound mostly by a dislike of Orban's policies and even perhaps more by his character. Can you explain to us what links together the opposition and maybe talk a little bit about Peter Marquise, who is the leader of the opposition? He is a Catholic. I believe he's a former Orban voter um, who has united a great coalition that goes from the left to the far right or formerly far right. How do you explain this great coalition and how and can you walk us through a bit who that Peter Marquise character is? Uh, maybe we'll start with Boris. All right. Okay. Thank you for the question. Um, <clears throat> there are several parts to this question. Uh, it's about the opposition coalition. Um, well, let's begin with that, perhaps. Uh, he did not, uh, Peter Marquis, I did not forge a coalition. The coalition was there before him. They allowed him to enter their primaries. It's a coalition of six parties. And he went on and won those primaries to the great dismay of the coalition who hate him for it. He, um, he is a small town mayor, mayor of the town of Hod Mezevashahe. And that he won the primaries is a clear sign of, of the great discontent in Hungarian society with the opposition. He actually uh, went public with the, with the phrase, we beat the opposition. This was at the evening of his, of his victory in the, in the primaries. And obviously they dislike, they dislike him for that. Um, and it will be, you know, he, he personally is, yeah, he, he, he was an Orban voter, but he also won the local elections in his town as a mayor with the support of Jobbik, the right-wing party uh, accused, rightfully so, over many years uh, to be inherently anti-Semitic and anti-Tsiganistic, racist. Um, he has, uh, he has uh, gone to photo ops with people who have gone on anti-Semitic rants. He has supported, openly supported a candidate in the east of country who said that the the, uh, how, how do you call them? The um, the hairdos of Orthodox Jews. They are they are how do you call them? In a playground, the slides the children slide on. Well, they are slides for lice. Uh, his do his dogs bark louder when Jews pass by there. This is a man who was supported by uh, Peter Markizai. The opposition had no problem with that. The Western media had no problem with that. There is no question in the Western media, but why is the opposition allied to a party with such a uh, legacy? Um, but more to the point, uh, he poses a danger to the uh, to the traditional opposition parties who have been there before him, and so he will find uh, he he will find it very difficult to govern if the opposition wins the election. He himself, he himself is a Catholic. Yeah, just a minute. He himself is a is a Catholic, as you say. He has seven children. He is not corrupt. Uh, so there are many positive points here, uh, and this is why he. And there's something about him which is charismatic. So people 
have voted for him. Uh, at the same time, he is prone to babbling a lot. He goes on Facebook live videos uh, and when goes on for an hour and a half and says things that then he has to say he's sorry for it. He called Fidesz voters mushrooms who are fed fed with shit. Uh, he, or not shit with a, what what do you call it? Um, what you doing? I don't know what's it in English. Something that you, manure, yeah, fed on manure. Uh, yeah, his conservatism. Yeah, he's Catholic. He's conservative, self-described conservative. But he has also said that Jesus was left-wing. So how can he be a conservative? Many contradictions in the things that he says. Uh, he has he has uh, said it's a good thing that so many people died in COVID because many of them were Fidesz voters. Um, he has gone and called uh, pro-government journalists, um, what's it called, people who are, you know, retards, retards. So poor guy, he then had to answer to, to uh, organizations dealing with the mentally disabled and saying that what he said was disparaging to the mentally disabled. So many problems that he creates for himself. Um, Dalibor, I'm, I'm not going to ask you the political theological question of whether Jesus is right wing or left wing. Um, but can you walk us through this kind of uh, strange coalition of odd bedfellows that goes from the far right to the left? How how can they agree to have an alliance with Jobbik, which is you know comes very much from the far right, has a strong anti-Semitic past? Uh, how, how's that alliance possible? Well, look, I was actually rehearsing my answer to the question of whether Jesus was left-wing or right-wing, and I could give you a very, very <laughs> concise, theologically sound answer to that. Uh, but first of all, um, let me just go back to, 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 to your initial framing of the question, which mentioned um, the, um, the, the price controls introduced by, by Orban's government. So, so I guess I'm in the minority of conservatives who had not yet received the memo that price controls were, were, were a good policy. Uh, I don't think that's a particularly Thatcherite point, to be honest. I mean, it's just basic economics. I mean, price co controls don't work. Uh, they, they don't work to contain inflation. It's just bad policy. It's been tried in places, you know, from, from Venezuela to every, every basket case economy in the developing world. And I think, you know, Hungary, with its 40-year experience of planned economy, I think had internalized that lesson quite well. That said... Uh, I mean, I do agree that there are serious questions about how the opposition is going to govern uh, if it indeed wins the election. Uh, there, my experience from my home country of Slovakia in the 1990s is one in which uh, the uh, budding authoritarian prime minister, Vladimir Mischer, was defeated in 1998 by a very uh, diverse coalition of political parties, which... Uh, nonetheless shared one unifying vision, namely turning Slovakia into a normal European country, uh, catching up with our neighbors, at, at that point, including Hungary, uh, joining NATO and the European Union. I don't see the quite the same unifying vision in Hungary at this point among the opposition parties, which, as you said, ranged from, from what was once far-right uh, extremist Jobbik to you know, left, left pro-EU uh, liberals. But ultimately, 12 years into Orbán's tenure as prime minister, this is going to be primary referendum on him as, as the incumbent, uh, less on the, and the opposition. And whether his pitch to the voters is a compelling one, I think, is at this point a, an open question. Huh. Um, Boris, I, I think you have something to say about uh, inflation. Yes. 
Well, first of all, I, I forgot to answer to the first part of the question about the price controls, and thank you, Dalibor, uh, Dalibor for mentioning it. Um, well, I, I, I beg to disagree. Um, in 2014, uh, Fidesz won the elections on price controls, and I don't think the country went bankrupt, bankrupt for that. It, it enjoyed spectacular economic growth. What were these price controls about? Well, it was about the, uh, the fact that Hungary, having joined the EU, opened up its markets uh, to the competition of Western companies who were infinitely more competitive than the local companies, and especially in the energy sector and in the banking sector. Uh, very soon, there was 100% um, foreign ownership of, of the uh, energy and banking infrastructure. So. What did that lead to? It led to a monopolistic situation in the energy sector, and that led to the poorest countries in the European Union had to pay the highest prices for energy. Households who lived on, on incomes of something like two, two, three, four hundred euros a month had to pay higher energy prices than people in Germany where you had uh, several companies offering energy, those competition prices were lower. This was so serious that in Bulgaria in 2013, three people set themselves afire alive. Two of them died out of protest uh, about energy prices. Orban recognized that there was a problem. People, especially pensioners, were asked to choose whether they wanted to heat or to eat. This could not go on, and he reacted by capping energy prices by 20%. Companies had to lower their prices by 20%, and voters uh, um, uh, reacted to that, and, and that was the, the defining element of his election victory in 2014. Now, this time around, it's not so much about um, the uh, negative effects of um, monopolistic market uh, situations for foreign companies, uh, it's a whole a whole slew of measures, indeed, giving gifts, as it were, to potential voters. Everyone will get back in fe on February fifteenth. Everyone will get back their entire income tax of the, of last year, up to a, a limit of the average income tax. Um, and there are other other things on offer. So yes, um, at this time. Clearly, uh, there's a background enabling Orban to argue that those who vote what we do, our policies, are helping even those who will vote against us. And they will fare worse even if they vote for the opposition. So if they come to power, even their supporters will fare worse than they do under us. Um, Dalibor, we're going from theology to the invisible hand of, mar of markets and economics. <laughs> Um, your thoughts? Yes, I was just going to interject very briefly. Uh, so, uh, I uh, obviously uh, remember a time when when conservatives embraced prudent fiscal policies and 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 and, and had, I suppose, more trust in in market forces rather than the heavy hand of the of the government. But that's almost besides the point. It is the, certainly the case that that Orbán in twenty ten and twenty fourteen. Uh, worked with a very unorthodox uh, mix of economic policies, both in response to the, uh, to the financial crisis and to, uh, to the sort of perce perceptions of, of, of you know, oligopolistic uh, market structures and, and, and so on and so forth. I would be uh, 
probably more skeptical than Boris in assessing the effectiveness of those policies in delivering good economic outcomes. It is true that Hungary had, uh, you know, rates of economic growth that exceed the EU average. Uh, but I think the relevant comparison is between Hungary and its and its neighbors. So you know, you look to the north, uh, you see Poland with a with an average growth rate over the past decade, which is significantly higher than. Then Hungary, you see Slovakia with a higher growth rate, you see Estonia uh, with a much, much higher growth rate. And, and so in, in, in sort of real terms, in purchasing power parity terms, if anything, over the past decade, Hungary has fallen behind, somewhat behind behind its neighbors. Like it's, you know, in, in, in sort of real terms, uh, per capita income in Hungary is the lowest among the Visegrad countries. It lags behind Estonia and Lithuania. Uh, the country has suffered uh Quite dramatically from 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 brain drain over the past decade. I mean, the, you know, the, the the problem goes much further than that. Uh, but but it really is not a picture of you know unquestionable universal prosperity that that that, that the Orbán campaign is going to try yeah. to paint. Well, it seems like you know we can we can uh, keep I guess uh, poking holes at the uh, the narrative from from the government that this is that this has been a uh, that this government has secured. Uh, you know, widely shared economic prosperity. We can we can get back into the, to, to this question in a little, but I think we've you know we've somewhat exhausted the, the domestic policy issues, uh, and we're getting here into something that I think is going to be the more interesting kind of bone, bone of contention here in, in, in this conversation, which is international affairs. Um, you know, uh, one of the main concerns with uh, Orbán's agenda from the EU, from multilateral bodies, and from people like Dalibor is that he has opened Hungary up to the nefarious influence of China and Russia, such as when I was there this summer, uh, working alongside Boris, by the way, such as by allowing a Hungarian-funded campus of a Chinese university, Fudan, to open in Budapest. Now, obviously, Orban, in his own telling, has you know, he has sought to balance East against West. He saw that China was rising. He thought that the best thing to do for his people and his country was to uh, open up opportunities for, you know, Chinese, uh, you know, investment into Hungary and whatnot. Um, so he was, in, in his own telling, he was diversifying Hungary's access to power, influence, money. So my question, and I guess for this one, we'll start with uh, Daliborn, uh, and then uh, Boris is going to be arguing on kind of on the back foot. But... Um, isn't it something of a paradox that just as Orban talks a big game about conservative Western values, he bodies up to Putin and Xi Jinping? Dalibor, starting with you, who should who should pro-Western Democrats be cheering for in this election? Look, I think uh, Boris and I are likely to agree that Hungary, much like other Central European countries, find themselves in very difficult uh, and uncertain geopolitical moment right now, um, and 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 therefore. Uh, you know the, the choices that these governments have to make are not easy, and and it's not easy to sort of second guess them from from the perspective of an outsider. At the same time, that strikes me as even more of a reason for a small Central European country uh, not to give additional leverage to one of you know to to, to its prospective adversaries to to, to revisionist. Uh, powers that seek to reverse the existing order from which countries such as Hungary and you know, Slovakia, Poland, etc., have have benefited, uh, and 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 actually that's exactly what what the Orbán government has done. I mean, you know, when you tie your you know nuclear industry to Russia, you are giving 
the Kremlin leverage. When you take on China-sponsored loans, you are giving the Beijing leverage. Uh, when you call yourself the pillar of the Belt and Road Initiative, you're you're doing exactly that. So, 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 so I think that's a question that 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 Hungarian voters will have to ask themselves. And if you know if there is a unifying theme to to to, to the opposition right now, it is it is it is really an embrace of of Hungary's place in the West, in 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 in, in the EU, in in sort of you know these integration structures that that Hungarians alongside other Central Eastern Europeans have have fought to fought to join. And I, I frankly don't see uh, the, the policies that were undertaken in this sphere over the past decade as, as being particularly beneficial to Hungary. I mean, you know, Belt and Road Initiative is is, is big on puffed up rhetoric, but but has been very slim on actual deliverables. And that includes that includes Hungary when you look at the actual investment projects. And and, and the ties to Russia and uh, you know the, the the sort of constant stream of things that you know Orban is meeting Putin next week, you know, at this particular moment on, on February first, um, the, the constant undercutting of Ukraine by by the Hungarian government, I think I think that's a real disservice to 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 Hungary's standing in the world, particularly at the time when I would like to hear uh, an amplified voice of Central and Eastern Europe, uh, because I, I, I do believe that the West is extremely complacent. Particularly about the Russian threat, and, uh, and 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 in a way, countries like Hungary and to a lesser extent Poland have sort of boxed themselves in a corner, uh, in, in a way that they are not able to play uh, that constructive role that 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 that, 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 that they should play. Yeah, and and Boris, I mean, obviously, you know, um, you know, we're we're not, um, you know, we're not asking that you you uh, you give us kind of a scholar's perspective on sort of, um, you know. The international influence of Hungary over the years, but you've been covering several Hungarian governments, including this one. How do you how do you assess this claim that uh, from the opposition that 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 uh, Orban has been uh, budding up to you know bad actors? <laughs> okay, well we we need to we really need to talk about Germany at this point. Uh, yeah. and also, we need we need yeah. to compare Orban to his predecessor in office, Ferenc Djurcain, who received Putin in his private apartment and introduced him to his dog. I don't think that will never happen with Orban. Um, so, um, you know, there is one European country who invented the opening towards the East, who developed uh, refined instruments of cooperation with China and Russia, making immense business business with both countries, uh, and that is Germany, way before countries like Hungary or Turkey uh, came around to see the benefit of that and started to imitate Germany because that is what we are seeing. This is an imitation of German strategy. No one has hurt Ukraine more than Germany uh, in uh, pursuing the project of a Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. This will bring Russian gas to Germany, circumventing Ukraine. Germany has denied delivering even defensive arms to Ukraine. It has denied permission to Estonia to uh, to give Ukraine German-made howitzers. The UK, when it transported Javelin anti-tank missiles to Ukraine, circumvented Germany. It shows an, an air route that did not pass over German airspace. Well, why was that? Um, German, uh, the, the new German left-wing coalition politicians have been asking to, to take Nord Stream 2 out of the whole Ukrainian 
uh, theme complex. So, so really, if you're going to talk about a country doing business, opening it, itself up to influence from China and Russia, hurting Ukraine, talk about Germany, not Hungary. Now, Hungary has uh, a position in international matters that is based on an analysis of past mistakes in its foreign policy over the centuries. And th they have identified one big mistake, which every small country is prone to making. Ally yourself, bind yourself to one great power only. That will hurt your interests in the long run. Hungary has done that. That great power uh, was Germany over two times. And before that, it was Austria. It never went well. So Hungary has developed a strategy of giving all the great powers something, but not everything. You know, hurting them, uh, doing something they don't like, but at the same time, giving them something. So they're giving Putin um, the nuclear energy project. They're giving him that he can meet Orban and he can come to Hungary, Orban will come to see him, but they don't give him other things. They give military cooperation to the United States, industrial cooperation to the Germans, um, as you mentioned, the Silk Road initiative to China. So they're giving everyone something. It's not necessarily always beneficial for Hungary, but the aim is to increase the room for maneuver. It's not beneficial uh, if, you, if you look at just that two-country bilateral relationship, but Uh, on the whole, it increases the room for maneuver. It increases uh, hung Hungary's profile on the international scene. It makes more people talk about uh, Orban and his government. And so in that sense, it's politically uh, welcome. Yeah. Dalibor, it seems like you want to react to, to some of what Boris has said. Well, I want to actually uh, nod in, 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 in very emphatically in agreement to, to Boris's criticisms of, of, of the German policy towards towards Russia. I, I subscribe to everything he has said on, on that front. Uh, but I just don't think that that makes uh, the Hungarian situation, uh, um, I mean, any better. If anything, it should be a reason for Hungary to push ever more strongly against against uh, the, the, the sort of policies pursued by, 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 by Germany, undercutting any kind of united European front against, against Russia and uh, against Russia and China. And I think the relevant comparisons here are really between Hungary and some of its neighbors or sort of close friends, whether the Czech Republic or, 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 or Poland. And obviously, we'll see the results of the current Hungarian experiment in, in, in sort of diversifying the portfolio of, of, of partners away from, 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 from just the West. But, you know, one cautionary tale is that of, uh, you know, Czechoslovakia after the Second World War, where uh, for three years, There was this illusion of, of Czechoslovakia as a sort of West between the East and the West, and we know how, how that turned up. Uh, it, I, I do believe that these policies are self-defeating, and, and I do believe that they already have come at the cost of damaging Hungary's relations, even in, you know, including with the, with the Trump administration. Uh, if you, you know, forget the... President Trump's pronouncements from Mar-a-Lago and, and Tucker Carlson, uh, and I actually speak to you know, people who were in the State Department at the time. I mean, Hungary even then was was a was a was a constant headache, particularly because of the uh, because of the uh, of, of of his overtures to to, to China. Okay, um, great. Well, you know, this is not um, this is not um, 
this is not particularly international, but it, it concerns uh, kind of Orban's relationship with with the EU. One of one of Orban's main uh, battlefronts has been Brussels. You know, he is he has allied himself with the Polish government in an eff- in an effort to to stake out an alternative to to what he calls the federalist consensus in Brussels and across the member states. Um, by doing so, I think it, it, admittedly Hungary is being has been punching far above its weight in EU debates lately. Um, what will Hungary's position in the EU look like if the opposition carries the day? And how much uh, credence do you lend to the argument that for, far from strengthening the Visegrad Four, the four countries in the Visegrad group, that Orban has in fact been undermining it from the inside by trying to morph it into this partisan conservative alliance, uh, starting with uh, Dalibor and then turning back to, to, to Boris? Well, I suppose I would, I would probably question... Uh the two premises of your question first of all about the um, supposed federalist consensus in the eu which really might have existed a decade ago or 15 years ago but 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 now has really eroded under the pressure of these various crises whether they have to do with the eurozone or migration or or various geopolitical challenges if anything the eu over the past decade has grown increasingly uh intergovernmental increasingly driven by various coalitions of member states rather than by, you know, ever more powerful Central European uh, institutions in, in Brussels. And I suppose the second premise I would challenge, which is related to that, is, is you know, whether Hungary has been truly punching all that much above its weight in, in, in the EU debates. I mean, it certainly seems to be the case in the migration debate, right? Um, on the other hand, I mean, the, the restrictionist voices that have, carried the day, uh, have not come only from Hungary, but also from, you know, social Democrats in Denmark or, or you know, a big fraction of, of German Christian Democrats. So, so, so you know, it, it might look like, you know, a big, big sort of validation of, 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 of Viktor Orban's point of view, and we could be framed that way. Um, but it really is a result of, of a much broader shift in, in public opinion across Europe as a result of the refugee crisis. And also, you know, it's just, like if if you consider that as a very important thing, then you should probably uh, reflect on the fact that it's not the case that millions of, of Muslim immigrants would be eager to emigrate to Hungary. I mean, I'd be much more worried about the brain drain if, if I were in the shoes of a Hungarian policymaker than about uh, about inflows of, of 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 immigrants. And once you turn away from immigration, I wonder what where, you know where the policy victories are. Who are the partners who are willing to team up with with Hungary on particular policy questions. I mean, you know, Visegrad right now seems to be dead, to be to be perfectly honest. If anything, Czechs and Slovaks really are embarrassed by by, by the ties to Hungary. Um, that that is a sort of bit of a wedge between Poland and Hungary on on, on, on sort of international issues. Uh, even the three C's initiative, which I think is is legitimately useful and, and should be revived and, and, and strengthened, is 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 sort of you know, has been sort of tainted with, with the sort of, you know, impressionistic accounts of culture wars on 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 the periphery, whether it's in Hungary or or Slovenia, etc. And and I think that's actually a massive loss both for Hungary and for Central Europe because we need these voices in the European debate, in the transatlantic debate, um, at a time when really the sort of international order is is is, is under pressure in a way that might 
actually have the most deleterious con- consequences for, for, for these small countries of Central and Eastern Europe. And Boris, you know, one, one of the, um, I mean, one of the ironies of kind of Orban's rhetoric, and this is really a talking point that the opposition is driving very, uh, very emphatically, is that, you know, here, here's this, uh, this leader who, um, you know, uh, you know, lambasts the EU every every chance he gets, but then he gets all, his country gets all of this money in in you know development money from from the EU. So uh, how how do you assess kind of Orbán's relationship with the EU, and what are how is it going to change if the opposition uh, carries the day? All right. Well, let me begin with how is it going to change if the opposition wins? This will be my shortest answer of the evening. They will go to Brussels. They will say, "Tell us what to do, and we will do it." If we don't do it well enough, tell us what we can do better and we will try to do so. That's what will happen if the opposition wins. Um, They have, on a less ironic tone, they have promised to introduce the euro within five years. They've promised to join the the EU's new uh, prosecutorial office. Um, The introduction of the euro would be catastrophic for the Hungarian economy. Uh, in the sense that um, um, the whole the whole strategy, the whole growth strategy, uh, is is based on the analysis of Joseph Stiglitz, the well-known economist, who uh, who analyzed in his book the Euro that the Euro was the cause for economic stagnation in the Eurozone because. Uh, the Eurozone has a common currency, but it does not have the uh, institutions necessary to manage it. It doesn't have a common finance minister, etc. It doesn't have a common tax policy. So uh, 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 Hungary, the Hungarian government has embraced that analysis. And they turned it around and, uh, and they said, well, if the Euro, the existence of the Euro is the reason for the Eurozone's relative stagnation, then let, let us formulate an economic policy that stipulates that every single year we, we want to grow more than the Eurozone by two percentage points. And then after a number of years, we will have, we will have reached the, uh, the Eurozone's um, style of living, or niveau de vivre, the prosperity level of the, of the Eurozone. If, you introduce, if, if the analysis of Stiglitz is correct, and if the EU does not reform uh, in the direction of more integration, that means stagnation continues. And that means if you join the euro, you join the stagnation. So I, th- I don't think it's a good idea for the opposition to do that. Um, and I forgot what the first part of the question was about. If you, if you may remind me of that, I will answer to that as well. Sure. Well, uh, generally, kind of Orban, the, you know, the role of the EU in Hungarian politics these days. I mean, it seems like you know, uh, Orban. Yeah. Came- okay. Good. 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 Yeah. Sure. So the impression is that uh, Orban lambasts the EU, but his policy is one of it's a triple policy. One is, you know, let's ask, let's not, let's not treat the EU as a religion where we all have to pray along and sing the same songs. Every single a subject that we talk about in the EU, let us ask the question whether it makes sense. Do refugee quotas make sense? Yes or no? And that goes the same for everything that the EU decides. Never just accept anything because it's European. Always ask, is, you know, does it make sense? 
Do we need a more integrated defense policy? Do we need um, to cooperate more closely in, for instance, uh, getting um, uh, people who request asylum, but they don't, you know, they're not entitled to it, to send them back to their respective countries? You know, would it be more effective if we do that on a European level? Here we can need, we can do with more European integration. In other questions, we, we should have less. So there is a differentiated approach. Then there is another aspect to Orban's EU policy. Whenever he promises to do something, he will always do it. His deputies in the European Parliament will always be loyal in their voting behavior if they're part of a parliamentary group. So you can count on Orban to do what he says he will do. What he doesn't like is to be stabbed in the back. And then obviously the EU is a foil that everyone uses in Europe to say, you know, when it's it's raining, it's the EU. When the sun is shining, it's our policy. And that's a classic of um, politics in Europe. But uh, I want to focus on one aspect which I found very interesting is how um, Orban has positioned Hungary and Budapest as kind of an alternative European capital for conservative thinkers. Um, they've been inviting a lot of people over the past few months. Um, famously, uh, for American audience, they'll know that Rod Dreher, the uh, American intellectual, and Tucker Carlson, the uh, media figure, both went to Budapest last summer. Uh, Eric Zemmour, Douglas Murray gave virtual speeches to Budapest uh, as well. Um, first of all, can you walk us through this um, outreach campaign? What is the objective behind it? And do you think institutions such as the Matthias Corvinus Collegium, um, where Boris teaches journalism and where Jorge actually was a visiting fellow last summer, do you think these institutions, which have been doing so much of that outreach, would be safe if the opposition were to win power? Um, so let's maybe begin with Boris. Okay. Um, so, well, let me begin with the last question then. Will MCC be safe if the opposition wins? Yeah, I think it will be safe. If the opposition is honest uh, when it says it defends the rule of law, um, but they have actually gone on record uh, saying things like written law can never be in opposition to the will of the people. This is a typical, this, we could hear this from communists. Uh, it's an incredible, an incredible uttering of Dobrev Klara in this case. And what uh, what they have been discussing in public is that um, if we come, if we win the elections, we will be the government, but we will not be able to, we will not have power, we will not be able to govern, because Fidesz has set up a parallel power structure um, that needs to be broken, and it cannot be broken if you stick to the written laws that Fidesz has written, and in many cases. To change them would necessitate a two-thirds majority, so you cannot do that if you stick to um, to the law. You have to actually break the law uh, in order to uh, in order to change anything. So, to take an example, MCC, my institution, it's a state foundation. Um, in order to change uh, its structure, Parliament would probably need to replace the man at the top. Uh, my boss, uh, Bolas Orban, for that it would need a two-thirds majority, which will, uh, in, in the case of an opposition victory, it would probably not have. And so we'll you know, have to see. If they, if they stick to the law, then everything's okay. If they don't, then yeah, they can go ahead and say, 
good. I mean, the laws don't count for anything. We will do what we want. And then there will be complaints to the European Court of Justice, I suppose. That'll take years to complete. And by then, everyone will have been fired and, uh, and they will have reached their goal. Boris, on, on, the first, on the first part of the question, on the outreach campaign, uh, is this something deliberate going on? Is there a strategy behind it? Yes, obviously there is. Um, let me take two steps back and recall how Orban gained international profile, first on the European scene. It was by establishing a contrast between him and Chancellor Angela Merkel. He's now succeeding in doing something similar in the Anglo-Saxon world. All of a sudden, everyone is talking about Orban because Tucker Carlson uh, was a guest in Budapest last summer. He's coming back actually soon. Um, uh, Rodrea obviously was here, but I don't think he's so much, he's so well known. Uh, Tucker Carlson's a bigger, bigger ticket. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, all of the Anglo-Saxon media is afire with, uh, with the subject of Orban in Hungary. New York Times correspondents flock in and want to talk to us and understand what's going on. Uh, yes, this is a uh, deliberate uh, outreach by Hungary. Um, and there is a reaction to it by uh, American conservatives, especially, who sense that the... Uh, the American conservative uh, model is in crisis. Um, Dalibo has, has mentioned the Thatcherite uh, philosophy. This is essentially a liberal philosophy, laissez-faire. Um, don't, don't have a big state. Don't intervene in anything. And, uh, and obviously Hungarian and, and continental European conservatism is not about that. It's about a strong state caring, caring for its people. And indeed intervening. So, so uh, American conservatives like Tucker Carlson are coming to Hungary because they, they are seeing a successful conservative government as opposed to not so successful conservative moments in, in the West. What are they doing? What makes them successful? They're, they have stopped illegal or they have succeeded in largely stopping um, undocumented migrants. And they have an interesting... Um, uh, model to strengthen families and, and maybe try to reverse the, um, you know, to solve the demographic crisis to have more children. So let's let's just go and look and see if we can learn anything there. This is will be really interesting and in seeing if uh, Orban can actually be an influence on American conservatism and make it more open to um, to a stronger state. And um, Dalibor, I mean, you know, obviously you sit, you know thousands of miles away from Budapest and all of this, uh, the, the, the intricacies of this may, may seem like uh, a little bit too much. But, um, you know, I, I think that Boris's last point, the last point which he made was was a very interesting one. It seems like Orban is um, being well received by a section of the American right, which is very post-liberal. Uh, you know, it wants to see a government intervene. It wants to see the state wield its power in pursuit of conservative goals. It no longer believes in this sort of neoliberal, you know, laissez-faire ordo-liberalism that that used to be the case in the 1980s, right? So, so you know, you you obviously sit at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a, a, a legacy institution on on the American right. Um, how do you? How what's your take on this whole debate? You know, Orbanism. I mean, it, the the interesting thing is that Orban is is inviting himself in U.S. domestic politics and where you work, right? People are talking about Hungary. Um, so what, what, uh, what, what's your take on all this? 
I think Boris's, Boris's point about how this really boils down to the question of what conservatism is and how it's understood by different audiences is, is an important one. Um, for me, uh, conservatism has been primarily about a certain commitment to principles that go beyond politics, commitment to limited constitutional government, uh, market economy, uh, small state to some extent, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, has the conservative movement as it constituted itself in the 70s and 80s had its blind spots? I think that's very obvious. And I think we need to have a sort of honest discussion about about the failures of the past. Uh, but I do have concerns about uh, the alternative, which is emerging with figures such as such as Tucker Carlson, which is, to my, my view, a very, very odd sort of profit for 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 any form of con- conservatism i mean you know when you when you listen to him and take take him seriously or and or literally you you know hear the conspiracy theories about you know the, the, the u.s election anti-vaccine propaganda and and really a sort of worship of power rather than commitment to 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 to, to limited government and, and and to me is a that, that's a very very sad development i mean it used to be the domain of the left to try to wield instruments of power and of government in the pursuit of of some some conception of 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 of, of the of the common good now you have people who call themselves conservatives trying to defeat the left at their own game and i suspect that it's not going to go quite as well as they as they imagine um i mean i you know i like the idea of of having a rogers crouton cafe in, in, in Budapest, you know, maybe with public funding as much as the next guy. Uh, but I also see the danger of having, you know, government funding channeled to ideologically driven causes. Obviously, we know that the left has been doing that. Uh, but, you know, the next time, you know, these, these, these kinds of initiatives and, 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 and Fidesz-sponsored universities, etc., are going to sh- be shut down and replaced by you know, reopened gender studies departments, uh, I, I fear that Hungarian conservatives will no longer be able to invoke the sort of classical liberal, traditionally conservative principles, that, namely that the government is not there to pursue any sort of ideological agenda uh, of its own, but is mainly there to maintain a modus vivendi in a, in a pluralistic society in which people do disagree about basic basic values. And, and, and so I do, do feel that there is a there is a danger there. Okay. Well, I, you know, I understand what Dalibor is saying. And I, I um, uh, first of all, I, I would like to point out that in terms of political philosophy, uh, con- continental European conservatism has never been about the small state and laissez-faire. This is an exclusively Anglo-Saxon philosophy uh, and uh, it probably contributed to making England and, and the United States the strongest nations on earth. But in particular settings, uh, German conservatism has always been about the, the caring, strong state looking out for small people uh, and, and not leaving them to their fate. Uh, I, I think this, uh, you know, this is an area which has been... Uh, disregarded by Anglo-Saxon conservatives. You do need, if you're conservative, uh, you do need to care for people. You can't just say you're on your own, you know, and if you succeed, good for you. But as a country, we need to, we need to, uh, 
let people die. So, <clears throat> so that's 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 the one thing. And ideologically, I I would argue that there, Orban is not ideological at all. Uh, and he picks elements from different political ph ph philosophies. He sees, uh, he, he tries to understand whether they can help to solve particular problems in Hungary, in the particular Hungarian setting, and to point out just a few. All the while, you have price caps. You also, you know, it's Orban who introduced a policy of very, very, um, reduced um, unemployment uh, payments. So if you're unemployed in Hungary, you get money, very little money for three months, and that's all, 90 days. That's an American idea. It's an American conservative idea. The idea is to, to force people to go and look for work and not be complacent, not say, okay, well, I can just about get by with that money for a year or more, and, uh, and so I won't even look for money. He, he did away with a lot of these uh, social subsidies and the result was a spectacular increase in, uh, in the, the uh, rate of people um, uh, in work. I also would like to use this particular point to contradict what uh, Daliba was saying earlier, that Hungary was doing much worse than uh, its neighbors. Poland, Estonia, Czechia, Slovakia. That was actually true, let's say, about four years ago. Um, and the brain, tr uh, brain drain uh, argument he makes was also true until about two years ago. But ever since about 2018, I would say the brain drain has been stopped. Uh, actually, my institution, MCC, is designed to help stop that. We, we are there to make it easier for young people to uh, have a career at home easier with better money than abroad um, and uh, and the uh, the growth rates the gdp growth um, tax you know the uh, incomes of the state treasury all of that all the while uh, open lower taxes radically so that's another conservative anglo-saxon recipe that he introduced uh, i would say that um, uh, GDP has grown, been growing stronger than in Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Slo uh, uh, or Czech, Czechia and Slovakia over the past uh, two or three years. So we have seen um, a change here. So, so as, 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 as just a factual matter, um, expressed in purchasing power parity, real terms, Hungarian GDP per capita is lower than in the three Visegrad countries and Estonia and Lithuania. That was the point I was I was making. But but I think Boris actually touched on something that was really important, namely that uh, the sort of English-speaking conservatism of the Thatcher-Reagan era uh, does have a blind spot when it comes to social safety nets and 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 and, and to sort of you know caring for for, for for the welfare of the of the least well off if you if you will. And I think that's an important debate to to have. But I think there is a vast difference between what he advocates as not leaving people to their own faith and leaving them die if they are you know, out of money, out of, out of resources, and the kind of politics we are seeing in, in Hungary, we've seen in Hungary over the past decade. I, I do believe that you know, like my main beef with, 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 with the way Viktor Orban and Fidesz has behaved in have behaved in government uh, really boils down to, to what political scientists call incumbent entrenchment or, or de-democratization. And it's not just, you know, it's not just Freedom House, it's not just 
Transparency International or, or sort of left-wing critics that could be easily dismissed at that pointing that out. It's really a consensus across the political sort of you know science comparatist uh, field. Uh, everybody you know from from you know the World Bank to senior Republican senators can 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 see it and can point it out. It's a sort of deny that there has been a form of de-democratization uh, or democratic backsliding, if you won't call it that way. Uh, really requires an extraordinary suspension of, 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 of this belief. Hmm. Well, that's a good place to conclude. I will remind our listeners that we did a fantastic episode on this conversation, which is episode five, which we did with the late and great. George Schopfen did a fantastic episode, episode five, A Contested Europe with Yuri Schopfen, where we talked about the concept of a liberal democracy and all this conversation, which we were having right now with uh, Dalibor and Boris. Thank you so much. We briefly touched on theology, but mostly about Hungarian politics. Um, Thank you so much for both of you. And to our listeners, I tell you, see you next week. So, Jorge, Boris Kalnoki and Dalibor Rohatcha out for this episode on the Hungarian election. You won Budapest last summer, so I think you're in a good position to start this conversation. Yeah, well, I think, so my, my first reaction is, you know, what a what a wide-ranging conversation this was. Yeah. You know, we've, uh, you know, we've briefly touched upon domestic politics, first of all, and we've dedicated a big kind of segment of the episode to foreign policy, and that, that I think, was perhaps the more interesting uh, bone of contention between our, our guests. I mean, obviously, you know, Boris, uh, you know, happens to... Um, really uh, endorse most of Orban's policies, and he's not—he's not a kind of a um, you know a, a yes man. He's not—you uh, know—he's his support for Orban is is reasoned. Uh, you know, it has you know is it weighs the pros and cons and comes out saying you know this is a good policy for my country. Um, you know, as opposed to just kind of like acquiescing to whatever Orban uh, comes up with. But I, I think you know foreign policy was really the, the more interesting part of our conversation because that that's where you saw that you know Dalibor as a as a conservative. I mean Dalibor is a is a uh, you know is a has a uh, an unimpeachable conservative record as an analyst. He he worked at the Cato Institute before. Now he works at KEI. So you know so he's been he's been around kind of the the, the you know uh, conservative libertarian ecosystem in DC for a while. And you know he's genuinely worried that that Orban is opening up uh, the region, uh, Hungary, but the larger region as well, to the influence of Russia and China. And you know, as a as a conservative kind of a, um, a hawk of sorts, he he opposes that. Um, and um, and I think what what was so interesting towards the end of our conversation is that we came back full circle and ended on a conversation uh, a conversation about the future of conservatism. I mean, that was, I, I, I was, you know, I absolutely love the last segment of the, the, the conversation. Uh, you know, yep. uh, Boris is, you know, Boris is, is essentially someone who, uh, uh, you know, I, I thought, I thought he made a very interesting point, right? European conservatism doesn't um, stand on the same ideological foundations as Anglo-American conservatism. The Anglo-American variety is a lot yep. closer to libertarianism, to yep. laissez-faire, whereas in, in the continent there was, a more traditionalist approach to matters, right? And so, uh, uh, you know, conservatives in the continent were more have been more amenable to state power. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just think it was such a wide ranging conversation that ended on on a very very interesting debate uh, about the future of conservatism, whether conservatism yeah. is going to remain 
you know, the the home of free marketeers, or 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 if it's or whether it's going to become post liberal. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's um, it's it's a deliberate strategy to position to hope for for Morban to position hunger in this way. Um, that we talked about all the different intellectuals, uh, Zimur um, and Douglas Murray virtually, but you know, physically, Rodrea, um, uh, Tucker Carlson, and many others have been inviting, even kind of younger intellectuals have been invited to come to, to, to Budapest. So there's really kind of an attempt to position Budapest as the central capital for this conversation. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the China question. It's interesting because... Undeniably, um, Orban has been trying to play both sides, trying to see how much uh, gains he can have with this Chinese relationship. But I think it's something that most European countries do. Um, as I was preparing for this uh, interview today, um, Politico just published uh, an article um, about uh, how Berlin has been working behind the scenes to undermine the common position against China following China's aggression against uh, Lithuania. Um, you know, the, the German Chancellor has been calling everyone he speaks German in the Commission to tone down pressure on China. Um, and, but calling everyone who speaks German in the Commission is a direct quote from Politico. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of countries are kind of afraid of confronting China. That's not part of their DNA. That's not who they, who they think of themselves as, as being. They do not act this way. Um, but Hungary is, in, to that extent, actually no, no exception. Now, where I think there is a real angle, and um, um, which is usually, I think, something that people on the left, especially in the European Parliament, fail to do, is if there is an angle you want to exploit, it's the angle of corruption. Um, because I think there's definitely things you can, you can, you can work on here. We've talked about it before. Um, but I think kind of attacking him on the kind of ideological standpoint, you know, because he's trying to create this, this, this new... Uh, branding of conservatism around you know a liberal democracy the rest of it i do not think that is the most political powerful uh, case you can make it if you want to oppose orban yeah yeah no absolutely um you know and the china question was uh was very interesting indeed i mean china, i mean hungary uh, as as we speak is uh has well has gone ahead with plans to build a campus of fudan university which is a chinese university uh, despite mm. Uh, the uh, very, in my view, very legitimate concerns about uh, yeah. state-funded espionage, I mean, state-funded spying on uh, in the industrial secrets of uh, Hungary. Um, so, so you know, uh, it's, it's a very interesting question. And, and again, yeah. I, I don't really know uh, where I stand on it. I mean, I, I remember having a conversation in the summer with Boris uh, where he said, you know, it's very easy for a rich, developed Western nation to say, Back off from that Chinese money. Stay as far away from it as you can. Yeah. It's it's a lot it's a lot harder to do that when you're a cent a small post communist Central European nation and China is knocking on your door with you know you know big big stacks of cash and, and big yeah. infrastructure money. Um, so I, I think there there's uh, there's a lot to be said for that uh, posture. I mean I, I remain a China hawk, but I'm I'm torn. Um, yeah, it's understandable, but. Again, we go back to this conversation about small nations versus great nations. You know, great nations talk about glory, values, the rest of it, and small nations focus on survival. Um, again, if 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 you don't understand the reference, it's um it's something Milan Kundera wrote in the nineteen nineties, 
um, um, the, the kidnapping of the of the West, where he talks about how small nations have very different relationships to to politics, to international politics, and that great nations like you know France, United States, Spain, Germany have. Um, small nations are countries which are mostly focused on on survival. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different approach to to um, to politics. Yeah. So Jorge, I, I, I before we conclude this this episode, this very interesting, uh, wide ranging conversation, I want to thank our patrons again, uh, all the wonderful patrons who have been supporting us. Again, we've got plenty of great plans. We are recording this in January, so you'll probably be listening to this in early February, and hopefully by then we will have plenty more of pa- plenty more patrons backing us. Uh, but um, right now we will be exploring different options we can do with our patient accounts, including having pay tiers with special content for our listeners, maybe longer interviews for you. Um, also, um, something else we are um, encouraging our, our patrons is they are they can send us questions, they can recommend episodes. We will tell them ahead of time which uh, recordings we will be doing and which people will be interviewing. And so if they want to send us any questions, to those people we will be interviewing, we'll be more than happy to send them their way. Um, yeah, because we've got plenty of ambitions, we're creating this legal structure that will help us uh, do bigger and greater things in the near future. So for the price of a sandwich a month, you can really help us continue to grow and continue to create a wonderful community around uncommon decency. If you can't spare the sandwich, don't worry, it happens. Um, I'm hungry too sometimes. But you can do plenty of easy things, such as writing a review on uh, Apple Podcasts. It really helps for this search engine optimization. You can uh, subscribe on Spotify, and you can send it around on Twitter or just, you know, through your, to your friends on, on, on Messenger or even like in real life. You know, all these small things really help a lot to continue the show grow week after week. Well, hey, thanks a lot. Thank you. And to all of you, I see you. I, I say you see you next week. See you next week.